0: morning. How is everybody today? I'm especially challenged by this passage today because uh, I will probably be giving kind of a minority report on Romans chapter 11. It's a different view that you've been hearing for the past few weeks. So in review, let's uh, read the passage. Uh, Romans chapter 11 verses 25 through 29. For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be uh, conceited. A partial hardening has happened to Israel unto the full number of the Gentiles have come in, and so all of Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. In regard to the gospel, they are enemies for our sake, for your sake. But in regards to election, they are dearly loved for the sake of the Father. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The real challenge to understanding this passage is the proper definition of Israel. Who or what is Israel, as it's referred to in this passage? It is not referring to the nation Israel, because at the time of the writing of Romans, there was no such place. If you ever look at the map of ancient uh, Middle East, there's Judea, there's Samaria, there's all kinds of places there, but nothing is labeled Israel. So they're not talking about a nation. The Israel mentioned here is most commonly understood to be the patriarch of um, Abraham's descendant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's new name was Israel. Therefore, we can take from Uh, take from this, that for this passage's purposes, we're talking about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are those who uh, spiritualize Israel as a body of true believers. Uh, Jesus said to the leaders of the Jews, And don't think you can say to yourselves you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 9. And Paul said, in him you also were circumcised, not however with a circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body that is through the circumcision done by Christ. And this is Colossians 2.11. When Israel is spiritualized, it is always to demonstrate that in the age, and, and in this age, God is no respecter of persons. We are all equal in his sight, we are equally condemned, and we are equally saved, and likewise equally redeemed. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise, Galatians three twenty-eight. However, that doesn't make less important the uniqueness of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So what does it mean to be Jewish? This is a real complicated question, because even among those who are self-identified as Jews, what it means to be Jewish is heavily debated. Is it enough to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? For some, the answer is yes. If your mother is Jewish, then you are Jewish. And uh, if this is the standard by which one becomes a Jew, then I, standing before you, am Jewish, because my mother was Jewish. I tell people I was raised Roman Catholic by my Jewish mother. So, um, And all of my conservative and liberal Jewish friends and those that are culturally Jewish, When they say, uh, uh, oh, uh, when they understand that my mother is Jewish, oh, you're Jewish too then. And then I tell them I go to an evangelical church and they just say, well, you're just a confused Jew. (laughs) But others have a much higher standard. There are some that would say it's not just heredity that counts. You also must be circumcised. You must believe and keep Torah and you must believe in God. These are the more orthodox. Now, uh, by this standard, I am not Jewish. Um, I remember uh, when I was a young boy in Catholic church, my dad uh, was the Catholic in the family, and he wanted to make sure the children were raised Catholic, but he never went to church. Uh, He was a police officer, so rarely did he ever, uh, uh, well, often he worked on Sunday, but even when he was off on Sunday, he rarely went to church. Um, but he would instruct my mother to take us children to church. And it was almost like there was this magic wall on the sidewalk where my mother would go no further and tell us children to go on into the church. And we'd sit in there by ourselves, and when we came out, she would be in the same spot on the sidewalk waiting to walk us home. Well, one Sunday, um, my older sisters weren't available, and I was going to church by myself, and so my mother came with me. And um, the priest, uh, during the communion, held up the Eucharist and blessed it. And I asked my mom, Mom, what is that? Oh, that's the Eucharist. They believe that's Jesus Christ's body. But we don't believe that. But we don't. What do we believe? Well, we believe that Jesus was uh, a a bastard child of a Roman soldier and Mary Mag... Excuse me, Mother Mary. (laughs) I said, we do. Oh, okay. All right, so I tucked that away in my mind. And then uh, it was uh, several years later, and it was time for Holy Communion, and uh, I'm going to the Holy Communion classes, and the priest begins to explain what the Eucharist is, and I said, oh, we don't believe that. And I told him, (laughs) I told him what my mother said we really do believe. Well, I learned real fast that you needed to parrot the right doctrines in order to stay out of trouble, because I saw what they did to the last Jew that screwed things up at the Catholic Church. They kind of hung him on one of those, you know? (laughs) So um, during my experience at at Catholic Church, um, there was this situation where a young lady was molested by one of the priests, and that put a bad taste in my mouth. And I decided that I didn't want to be part of that church anymore, and I was just a little boy. And it was a, it's a sad story, I won't go into the details, but they blamed her for what had happened, not him. And she was just a 12-year-old child. I can't imagine that that was possible. Even as a 12-year-old boy, I couldn't imagine that was, a, that was even possible. So it was at that point in time where your normal, good Jewish boy would be getting bar mitzvah. And my mother said, this is my opportunity. I'm going to take him to an Orthodox church, and I'm going to have him bar mitzvah. Well, that didn't go over very well either when I started talking about this Jesus character. And then I found out that, uh, according to them, I wasn't circumcised. So a 12-year-old boy is not going to let anybody get in that neighborhood. (laughs) So technically, speaking from the Orthodox perspective, I'm not Jewish. And according to the Catholics, I'm not not Catholic. uh, So I guess I'm kind of an orphan out there. So it's difficult to figure out whom is the Jew and, and who God is referring to unless you think of this as um, making it a, uh, we can, we tend to make these things too complicated. We bring our thoughts into things. And quite frankly, as far as God is uh, concerned, referring to this passage in particular. I believe he's referring to the descendants of Israel. So which begs the question, who is a Gentile? When people read the Bible, they they think of the Old Testament, they're talking about Jews, and they're thinking of the New Testament, they're talking about Christians. God has always revealed himself to both Jews and Gentiles throughout all of history. I don't think he's ever really been a respecter of people. All of it is not recorded in the Bible, though, but the Bible does give us examples of God's faithfulness in the world. So let's take some Bible characters, and you tell me whether they're Jewish or Gentile. Adam and Eve. Gentile. Gentile. Noah. Job. Gentile. In fact, it's understood that Job and Abraham were contemporaries. They lived around the same time in history. Ruth, Melchizedek, how about Jonah? Good, good, that was a trick question. But what did Jonah do? What was his job? Go to Nineveh and do what? Preach the gospel. It's pretty interesting that uh, 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 Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh to preach to Gentiles. Especially Gentiles that he didn't like too much. And Gentiles that had the idea that, you know, it's a good idea if we annihilated all those Jews. Uh, I don't know about you, but put it into contemporary terms, I say, you know, it would be like uh, God calling me to go preach to the Taliban. I think I would go to Cape Canaveral and ask for the first rocket ship to Mars. I'd like to go there, please. Instead. (laughs) And that's exactly what Jonah did, as he went down to the nearest harbor and took the boat in the opposite direction. But God has always been reaching out to the Gentiles throughout history. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. The centurion in Matthew chapter 8. The Chaldean woman in Matthew 15. This is the woman who said, my my, uh, daughter is ill, would you please heal her? And Jesus said, I have come to to my uh, own people. And And she said, even the dogs feed off the crumbs that fall off the table of the master children. And Jesus was incredibly impressed with the faithfulness of many Gentiles. So, the chosen people, the unique people that we talk about we call Jewish. Do you know the only comprise 0.2% of the world's population. Small minority, tiny infinitesimal minority. The Jews are blessed to be a blessing. And that blessing has provided it has proven to be more than just the messianic fulfillment. They are major contributors in the world. Nobel Peace Prize Nobel Prize winners, 29% Jewish. Fields medal winners, 25% Jewish. The great inventions of the world, of the the 250 individual inventors in this century, more than 15% of them were Jewish, including a guy named Zoll who invented the defibrillator and the pacemaker, a guy named Land who invented instant photography, a guy named Gabor who invented holography, and uh, Ginsburg, who invented the videotape. They are disproportionately contributors to most of the arts. America's leading symphony orchestras have been led by Jewish conductors one third of the time. Two thirds of Broadway's longest running plays were written by Jews. One fourth of the greatest photographers of all time have been Jewish. 10% of the world's greatest architects. Of movie directors who have earned Oscars 38% were Jewish. 30% of the Kennedy Center honor recipients. And 13% of all the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award winners were Jewish. It's amazing. You would think we would want more Jewish people around. All the contributions they've made to the world. Why is it then that for centuries, for millennia, the world has been trying to annihilate? I think it's because they've carried the torch of Torah. They've carried his word. The messianic line came through them. Pharaoh at the Red Sea wanted to destroy him. Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom. Babylon destroyed destruction of the destruction of the first temple. Greek occupation in the uh, Maccabean Wars. Roman, Rome expelled every Jew from Rome in A.D. 50. Rome also destroyed the second temple in AD 70. The Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, and there is now renewed hatred towards the Jewish uh, people growing today. A top rabbi urged Jewish people to flee Ukraine after thugs attacked their synagogue. This was just April 23rd. I pulled it from the newspaper. That's too far away. Doesn't affect us. All the way over in the Ukraine, they're having wars and stuff. New York Daily News on April 1st. Attacks on Jews in New York City tripled in 2013. The real mystery is not what's going to become of the Jews. The prophet Daniel, through the sacred writings of Jeremiah and the revelation of God's message, has recorded the eschatological fulfillment of God's promise to Israel you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the messenger sent to Daniel by God said, 70 weeks have been determined concerning your people and your holy city to put an end to rebellion, to bring sin to com- uh, completion, to atone for iniquity, to bring in perpetual righteousness, to seal up the prophetic visions, and to at- atone a most holy place. This real mystery is, how does the church fit into God's plan? Because it's not recorded anywhere in Scripture until we come to Matthew. That's a question that we're not going to answer today. That's a question we may not answer for a long, long time. It's a big question. The first time the church is recorded in Scriptures is Matthew sixteen eighteen. The last time it's recorded is in Revelations 3.14. What happens between these two verses is known as the church age. It's the, it's, uh, the part of what uh, um, Paul was referring to in Romans when he said, until the Gentile time has been fulfilled. Romans 11 has been explained as the church assuming the blessings of Israel and then a kind of replacement for Israel. And Romans 11 has been explained as God honoring his promise to Israel by keeping a remnant for himself within the church. It seems clear to me that the text does not allow, to, uh, allow us to, uh, to support such an explanation. For It says in to- verse 29, For the gift and the call of God is irrevocable. No matter what the Jews did. His promise is irrevocable. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles have come. Now, most of you know I'm in the pest control business. I kill bugs for a living. I like it. I wake up every morning and realize that somebody is going to pay me to do something I probably would have done for fun anyway. So it's a great way to make a living for me. But if I came to my customer and I said, you know, I'm going to annihilate and eliminate all the bugs in your home. But when I was done, I left a remnant. They wouldn't be very happy, would they? They would have said I didn't complete the task. I said, and it's, it's sort of like that with God, with this promise that uh, we're, we're looking at this remnant within the church as the answer to what the Jewish dilemma what's going to happen with them. That's not good enough. God promised to save all of them. And I don't think the remnant is a good answer. I think God is going to save all of them, or at least most of them. The remnant is like a token of things to come, not the fulfillment. I I, uh, struggle sometimes as to whether I'm part of the token or I'm part of the church. Am I going to be uh, part of the token Jews that are within the church, or am I uh, a part of the church itself? You know, I have run into situations where I have not been welcome because they knew I was Jewish in churches. I've run into situations because uh, amongst Jews that they don't accept me because they think I'm a Christian. And I run into circumstances among Christians that they don't accept me because they think I'm Jewish. It's never bothered me. God will work it out one way or the other, either way. But I'm confident, and one of the reasons why I never joined a messianic congregation is because I am confident that this is the church age and that I belong in a church, and I am a Christian. And my, my ancestry has nothing to do with it. It wouldn't matter if I was German or Irish or Hindu. It doesn't matter. You're a Christian when you follow Christ. And so, in Isaiah's time, it was a token also. Because we frequently refer to Isaiah when we talk about this token. And in the church age, it's a token. God left a token to, re- to remind everybody that he's going to fulfill his promises ultimately. And the Messiah ultimately came. It's sort of like a placeholder, if you will, of things to come. Romans chapter 11 verse 4 But what was the divine response to him I have kept for myself 7000 people who have not bent the knee to Baal So in the same way at the present time the church age that's me adding that the church age there is a remnant chosen by grace And it is by grace it is not it is no longer by works otherwise grace would not no longer be grace What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was uh, diligently seeking, but the elect obtained it, the rest were hardened. Romans 11, verse 14. It it was a token. So how will the the 70th week of Daniel be fulfilled? How will the uh, nation of Israel ultimately be saved? The revelation of Jesus Christ foretells this. And I know some people are uncomfortable with prophetic writings. Uh, it's the blind leading the blind, they say. I agree, but I believe God gave it to us as a revelation, and I believe God expects us to, to wrestle with it. So I try to wrestle with it from time to time. So um, the revelation of Jesus Christ foretells of these events... Here are some of the lesser-known highlights. Remember, the church is never mentioned in Revelations beyond chapter three. The church has been removed from the scene, so all the uh, remains, uh, all that remains, is meant for Israel. And so, uh, some of you have, uh, I'm sure, heard of this thing called the rapture. Some of us believe in it. Some of us don't. Some of us have different times when it's going to occur. I'm fairly confident that in my studies of this event, that it is going to happen sometime in the third chapter of Revelations, as it is being unfolded. And the church is no longer mentioned in the Bible from that day forward. And, you know, of course, we got the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, everybody knows about that. And all the other things that take place in the latter days are all intended to win over the hearts and minds of all the world through the one called by his name. Some of the lesser-known evangelists is the uh, 144,000. 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000. These are all young Jewish men who are virgins. Why are they virgins? I'm not sure. You'll have to ask God when you get to heaven. But they're all... Jewish men, and their assignment is they are sealed with with God's name on their forehead, and they cannot be harmed, and their assignment is to go out and evangelize the world. The two witnesses, I'm sure you all have heard of these guys, the two witnesses, they're struck down dead, they're left for dead in the middle of the square for a week, and then God raises them from the dead. They proclaim the gospel and are immediately ushered up into heaven. And the three orbiting angels... Anybody know about this? The three orbiting angels? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6. And this is John saying, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. And the flying directly overhead, um, uh, the uh, original language uh, tends to be continuously flying directly overhead. Sort of like an orbiting angel. And he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who lived on earth. To every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. He declared in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has arrived. And worship the one who had heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. And then a second angel followed the first, declaring... Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city. She made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passion. And a third angel followed the second. Declare in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast or his image and takes the mark on his forehead or on his hand, these people will also drink the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted in the cup of his wrath. And he will be tortured with fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. And those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night. Along with everyone who receives the mark of his name. This requires the steadfast endurance of the saints. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to their faith in Jesus. And then, of course, the final thing is the ultimate return of Jesus as conquering king. So all of these plagues, all of these natural disasters, all of the miraculous signs, all of the divine proclamations, all of the testimonies and all the witness presented in the last days are for Israel and his descendants to believe. The majority do believe, not just a remnant. They become the evangelists of the world, the testimony of God's grace to the nations of Gentiles in the last days and in places in the hands of the descendants of Israel. God keeps his word in full. This time it is a remnant that rejects, not a remnant that believes. So how does one become saved? This is a question that can be answered pretty simply. Well, it has never changed, really, and it's belief. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord considered his response of faith as proof of genuine loyalty. Genesis 15.6 Then Israel saw the great power that the Lord had exercised over the Egyptians. They feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Exodus 14.31 the people of Nineveh, remember Jonah? The people of Nineveh believed in God, and they declared a fast, and put on sackcloth from, from the greatest to the least of them. Jonah, chapter 3, 5. Yet many of the crowd believed in him and said, Whoever the Christ com- Whenever the Christ comes, he, he won't perform more miraculous signs than this man did, will he? John, chapter 7, verse 31. Then many of the people who have come with Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. John eleven forty five. For the grace you are for by grace you are saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Ephesians two eight. But what does it say? The word is never is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach, because if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, and thus has righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses, and thus has salvation. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. It has always been and always will be belief in the revelation of God as we understand it in the age in which we are. Each age comes along, God reveals himself more deeply. But at all times, God expects us to believe and trust in what he says. God is no respecter of persons. I can tell you right now he is not impressed. If you can say have if you say you have Abraham as your father. Do you think for 1 minute God would look down on me and say that Ron, son of Abraham. Good guy loves loves the faithful. I sure am impressed. May I say hell no. He wouldn't be impressed because he's no respecter of persons. There is nothing that you have that can impress God. Everyone is saved the same way, through all ages, by grace, through faith. In each age, a deeper revelation of God's truth holds us accountable to believe, yet without favoritism. The church age has revealed Jesus, and Jesus is not optional. This Jesus and his resurrection has been a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles for the past two centuries. One of my employees years ago started asking me questions about my faith because he knew I was involved in church, but he also knew that I was a scientist, that the name of my company is Scientific Insect Control. I read all the latest papers written up on the biology of insects all the time. People think that that's boring reading, but for me it's something I read all the time. It's uh, better to, than, than reading The Hobbit, as far as I'm concerned. Um, oh, I'm sorry, did I offend? <laughs> so he wanted to understand how I could have this intellectual mind over here and this spiritual mind over here, and how do they get along? How do they work together? And he started asking me questions about my faith and then how do I reconcile that with my understanding of science. And, and uh, we got around to this one question he asked me and he says, what is the most important doctrine, the most important idea in Christianity? And I says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he was done. That's nonsense. I want to no know parts of that. He was done. It's been a stumbling block for the Jews. It's been foolishness to the Gentiles. He falls in the Gentile category. Foolishness as far as he was concerned. Nobody rises from the dead. Turn with me to close to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I didn't think of that, by the way. I took it from the Scriptures. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes and pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, there are many ways that we have to describe how things will unfold. and I ask, Lord, that you would help us to hold these things loosely in our hands. But Lord God, I also ask that you would allow us to hold firmly in our hands the hardcore doctrines of our faith. That Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords, that he is our Savior, that he has risen from the dead, and that all who believe in him shall be saved. And I know, Lord, that this world is not a perfect place. And all of us have our troubles. There may be different kind of trouble for each person. Some may have need of a job. Others may have had a friend or a close, trusted individual betray them. Some may have uh, the tax man chasing after them. Some may have uh, health issues. We know one man in our group is having problems with back pain and had just had surgery. Lord God, we are called to a great salvation, not just a salvation that saves us from fire and brimstone, but a salvation that saves us to an abundant life. A life full of joy, a life full of love, a life full of holiness. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to take our burdens and lay them at your feet. And let you help us carry our load so that me, we may rejoice in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.